Please open your Bibles uh, to Psalm 65. We're going to be spending the next several weeks in the Psalms, which we've been doing over the last few summers. And so today we're looking at Psalm, Psalm 65. I'll give you just a few moments to turn there. The heading above Psalm 65 in the English Standard Version says, O God of our salvation. So Psalm 65. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praises due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, it's given to us in love for our good. So Psalm 65, like, like many psalms, has a title at the beginning, this under that heading that I read earlier that's provided by the ESV translation, but there is a title, and that title is there in the Hebrew and is, I think, to be considered as part of this text, and that title is, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David, a Song. And so this, this title, this heading, you know, tells us a couple of things. First, that, that David is the author of Psalm 65. And of course, that David is King David, you know, Israel's warrior poet king, the one who defeated Goliath, you know, King David. Second, Psalm 65 was written to be sung in worship. You see, to the choir master, a song. And if you noticed, we, we actually sang it ourselves during the offertory. We sang Psalm 65. What we're not told from this heading, from this title, are the circumstances of why and when David wrote Psalm 65. Now, you may have noticed, at the, especially in the, in the final section of Psalm 65, it certainly appears to be a, a harvest song, a song of praise to God whenever he's provided the rains and the, the, the fields are, are green and the crops are growing and the, the, the flocks and herds have, have much to eat out in the fields. And so some 
Scholars think that perhaps David wrote this psalm to be sung during the, the annual Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of Israel's harvest festivals. Perhaps that's the case. We'll talk about it a little bit later in the sermon. But maybe David wrote this psalm at the very end of a long and severe famine. You know, a devastating famine over the land. But now that was over and, and God had sent the rain. And the crops had begun to, to grow. Or maybe David wrote this psalm at the end of a, of a great um, military victory after God had been faithful to his people and had sustained them. Regardless, we don't know for certain when and why David wrote Psalm 65. What we do know is that this psalm makes it plain that God's people always, always, at all times, in the best of times, in, in the worst of times, God's people always have reason to praise, adore, and worship our God. Okay, well, what are those reasons? Well, Psalm 65 gives us three overarching reasons to always praise God. And it certainly has to do with, with who He is, with His character. And those three reasons form the outline or the headings for the sermon today. So why praise God? Because he is the God of grace, because he's the God of might, and because he's the God of blessing. He's the God of grace, the God of might, and the God of blessing. So first, the, the God of grace, and we'll spend most of our time on this first section looking at verses 1 to 4 under this heading, the, the, the God of grace. The first thing we see about the God of grace is that he hears and answers prayer. So look at verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. So verse 1 mentions Zion, which reminds us that David was thinking about the worship of God's people in the tabernacle. Remember, the Solomon had not yet built the temple. But David's thinking about the corporate worship of God's people in the tabernacle on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And then we see at the beginning of verse 2, O you who hear prayer. The God of grace hears and answers prayer. And that's not a small thing. We shouldn't just skip past that. Oh, you who hear prayer. Right? Prayer is not simply you know, positive thoughts that benefit us. But prayer is, is asking our Heavenly Father, asking, seeking, knocking, beseeching Him to, to move and work in circumstances and in people and in their hearts. You know, many of our elders met this morning early to pray. Why? Because they believe, they know that our God of grace hears and answers prayer. See, we need to know that we're not left all alone here on this earth to, to struggle and grope our way through the trials and the overwhelming problems and perplexities of life. That our God hears and answers prayer. As one pastor put it, God's ear is open to our needs. And he answers when we pray. That his ear is always open to our needs. Look, look at all of verse 2 now. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Now he's talking about all mankind, people of all types, but he uses that word flesh. And I think the, the pastor from the 1800s, J.J. Stewart Perron, said it well when he said, By flesh is meant man and his weakness and need. You know, o you hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. You see, brother and sister in Christ, you never have to worry that God was going to be too busy to hear from you. You should never ever think that you're too small, you're too insignificant. 
You never have to worry that God is going to find your prayer too weak. You never have to worry that God will find your prayer unworthy of his time and attention. That that God's ear is open to our needs. So look again at verse 2. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. See, God invites all flesh to come to him in prayer. See, that's God's desire for sinful, weak, needy people from every tribe, tongue, people, group, nation to come to him for salvation in the Savior and to offer prayer to the God of grace. Now, in David's day, only the Israelites had access to the tabernacle on Mount Zion, but it appears that David was looking into the future. Notice in verse 2, it says, To you shall, looking forward, to you shall all flesh come. Looking forward to a day whenever, after the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of Christ, that the gospel of God's grace would spread forth from Jerusalem to all Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, would spread from the the Jews to the non-Jews, from the Jews to the Gentiles, out to every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. Listen to what we read in Micah chapter 4, and these same verses are essentially echoed in Isaiah 2 as well, but in Micah 4 we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, friends, what a privilege it is for us who live at this moment, at this place in the history of redemption. Where we, you know, most of us being Gentiles, most of us being those from among the nations who now know Christ, who live where we live after Christ's coming taking on flesh, dwelling among us, living a perfect righteous life, dying an atoning death on Calvary's cross, rising from the grave on that first Easter morning, gloriously ascending to God the Father's right hand in heaven, that we can and we should offer prayer at all times and with all types of prayer and with all perseverance and for all things and for everyone, you know, as Paul urged us to do at the end of Ephesians 6. And we should praise God that this is true. Praise our God of grace. But the second thing about the God of grace, not only that he hears and answers prayer, but that he provides atonement. He provides atonement. Look look at verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. David says, when iniquities, whenever my sin or my transgressions prevail against me. David's talking about whenever he's struggling with a growing sense of the guilt of his own sin. Or as we sung earlier in, in the version of Psalm 65, when, when sins rise up against us, accusing us every day, what do we do? To whom do we turn? Well, how could a sinner like David and like each and every one of us enter into the presence of the holy God of grace? Well, verse 3 tells us it's only through the atonement that God provides. And look at verse 3. Look at it very carefully, especially that second phrase. You atone for our transgressions. 
See, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, they're forgiven by God. I hope you see that. But do you also see that David is describing, is describing something that God must do? It's not that we atone for our transgressions. It's not the people who make atonement for their own sin. It's God. He must do it. And, and praise God that he does. Praise God that he has. Praise God that our God of grace has made atonement for our sins, for all of them, through the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Remember what uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so notice this, that David is, is pointing out in Psalm 65 that, that God, God must, make a, must atone for our transgressions. What the author of Hebrews is reminding us is that there was a time before the coming of Christ, before his life and before his death and before his resurrection, when the priests carrying out the ceremonial law would, would stand daily at their service. They would stand daily, never sitting down because their, their task, their role, their, their calling to offer these sacrifices was, was never finished. It was never over. And then, but then when Christ, our great high priest, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sits down at the right hand of God because his work of atonement is finished. As Pastor Richard Phillips says, the Old Testament sacrifices therefore pointed not to a payment that sinful man would make for himself, but to an atonement that God would graciously provide for his sinful people. Paul lays this out in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. That's why John the Baptist introduces Jesus to us in John 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus, God the Son, is the true sacrificial lamb, not only the great high priest, but also the true sacrificial lamb God provided to make atonement for our sin. God the Father offered him up, and God the Son offered himself up to make atonement for our sin, to pay for our sin, to cancel our sin debt completely, to wash away all of our sin. So put another way, our salvation is free to us, it was infinitely costly to our God who provides atonement in and through God the Son's perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross. The God of grace provides atonement, and that's another reason why we should praise him. But the final thing we see about the God of grace in this first section is that he blesses those he brings near. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. See, our salvation is by God's grace. And it's grace that's wholly dependent upon God's sovereign choice and apart from our own merit. Right? We, we do not make atonement for our own sins. 
We do not wake ourselves up and revive ourselves from being dead in our trespasses and sins, that God must save us. God must elect us for salvation. He must sovereignly and lovingly choose us. He must make us alive together with Christ. One of the things that we learned in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, even as he, God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So, so look back to all of verse 4. Blessed, in Psalm 65, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You see, when God saves us by his grace, he brings us near. And he brings us all of the way in, near to dwell. You see that? To dwell, to live in his courts. Yet we who were God's enemies because of our sin, we've now been brought near to dwell, to live, to be in his courts, not into his presence, not merely as his guests, but as his children as his family. And notice that phrase, the holiness of your temple. Commentator Alan Ross says, and perhaps the most amazing benefit of atonement is found in the expression, the holiness of your temple. They will be brought that close to God, to the place set apart for God and those he calls us to draw near. Being in the courtyard would have been wonderful in itself, but being brought into the holy place of the temple was as near to God as the worshiper could go. But it's not just that we're brought into the temple. Again, as we know from our study of Ephesians, that Paul teaches us that we are actually being joined together and built up together as a holy temple in the Lord. Remember in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you've been brought near. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in Christ we have been brought near all the way in, into God's house, not as guests, not merely as guests, but as members of his household, as family, as his children, as co-heirs with Christ. And we're being joined together and built together into a holy temple in the Lord. So why praise God? Because he's the God of grace. Secondly, because he is the God of might, God of power. Look at verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Now it's, it's hard to know for certain what these awesome deeds are. But, but I agree with those pastors and commentators who point to God's awesome deeds throughout redemptive history as surely being part of what uh, David is talking about here. Right? Awesome deeds throughout redemptive history on behalf of God's covenant people like sending the ten plagues and turning the Nile into blood and parting of the Red Sea in the Exodus. Deeds like causing the sun to stand still in the sky to give Joshua the time he needs to win the battle in, in Joshua 10, just to name a few of these awesome deeds. Then we see in the next part of verse 5, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. 
You see, friends, the God of might, the God of our salvation, he's the singular, the sole, the one and only hope of all the ends of the earth. That, that he is our hope, there is no other. That he is our hope, our certain hope, our confidence, our trust, and he is the one and only hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Then we look at verse 6. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. That our God of might, our sovereign Lord, who is all-powerful, he is the one God. And he rules over all. And he alone rules over all. And there's no other God. That he's the one who established the mountains, put them in their place. Whether we're talking about the Appalachians, the Rockies, the Tetons, the Himalayas, whatever you want to name, he established, God and God alone established the mountains with his mighty power. And we see in verse 7, who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Not only does God, the God of might, establish the mountains, but he also controls and steals the, the roaring seas. And even the raging of the nations. Again, Richard Phillips says, in the Bible, the churning sea is symbolic of the power of chaos and evil in opposition to God. How often these forces seem out of control in our world, but God can subdue them as easily as Jesus stilled the waves amid the storm. You think about that. Just as Jesus spoke a word and the storm and the waves quieted, our God has not and will not lose control of this world. He has not, he will not lose control of the nations. He has not and will not lose control of this church. He has not and will not lose control of our lives. And so what a comfort this should be and can be and must be to the people of God to know and be reminded of the truth that God sovereignly and powerfully controls and rules over everything everything without exception in our lives from the roaring seas to the raging of the nations and everything in between and then look back at the last verse in this section verse 8 so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy now think about think about what's said here this phrase the going out of the morning and the evening See, again, this is talking about how this, our God of might, how he sovereignly rules over every, rules over everywhere and over all the time. Everywhere and all the time. See, everywhere means from the east where the morning breaks all the way to the west where the day ends. He rules everywhere and it means all the time from the beginning of the morning to the end of the day. And everything in between. So understanding that this is how our God of might rules over all the earth should result in our joyful shouts of praise to our God and great confidence in what God is doing even when we cannot connect all the dots. Even when we're, we're confused. Even whenever we're angry. Even when we're afraid in the various trials and we're uncertain in the various trials of our lives. And so why praise God? Because he's the God of grace. Second, because he's the God of might. 
Thirdly, we'll look at this last section, he's the God of blessing, referring to both material blessing and spiritual blessing. This third and final section of Psalm 65 is why many consider it to be a harvest song. You see, God is our God of grace, our God of truly amazing grace. He, he forgives sin. He atones for our transgression. And he's our God of might, sovereignly, powerfully ruling over all things, everywhere, all the time. And as we see here in this final section, he is our God of blessing, both in material blessings and in spiritual blessings. You know, as we sing each and every Sunday, he is our God from whom all blessings flow. And so look at verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. So I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that I hope, I hope that you're like the Harris family and you are running your sprinkler system pretty hard these days, right? Just to kind of keep that, that grass from becoming a desert. And while I'm thankful for our sprinkler system, a good hard rain is so much better than us running that system faithfully. Right, God's ability to irrigate his world is so far superior to anything created by mankind, anything that we can come up with. And, and in David's world and in farming communities still today, the following is true. Listen to how commentator John Oswalt puts it. If the rains came at the appropriate times, one could hope for good crops, which meant enough food, enough bread for the coming year and seed for the following year's crop. You see, the people in David's day desperately needed, they were desperately dependent upon God to provide the water and growth for their crops. You know, I've, I may have told this story before, I'm not sure, but I know many of you know that I grew up on a farm, and um, after I became a Christian, I went home and spoke to my dad, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and, 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 and he was listening. He had not spent much time in church, but growing up in a rural area, you know, there's a sense of kind of osmosis at some level where you pick up some things and you have some understanding of, of who God is and some of what the Bible teaches at some, at some level. Often it's still confused. But as my dad heard the gospel, we were out in one of, by one of his fields looking at one of the crops. And he said to me, he said, son, he goes, I, I, I know that there is a God. I believe that God's real. My dad actually made this point. He said, I believe that God's real because, you know, you see, and we had these, you know, we had the big um, irrigation pivots over the field. He said, son, you see that, you know, we, we can pump water from the pond through this irrigation pivot nonstop. And that's better than not doing it. But no matter how faithful I am to irrigate this field, that God seeing the rain is so much better for these crops than what I can do. My dad said, he said, son, he goes, I know there's a God and he's real because I, all I can do, all I can do is I can put the seed into the ground and I can fertilize it. I can keep the weeds away. I can try to irrigate it. But I know I can't make it grow. That God has to make it grow. What we see in this last section of Psalm 65 is David acknowledging that and praising God for whenever God provides the rain, how his people are blessed by the ways that the world flourishes. And so listen to this whole final section from verse 9 now down to verse 13. 
You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the, pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, Here we almost feel the splash of flowers, the sense of the springing growth about us. Yet the whole song has this directness. Whether it's speaking of God in his temple courts, verses 1 to 4, the God of grace, or in his vast dominion, verses 5 to 8, the God of might, or among the hills and valleys, which is very passing, wakens into life, verses 9 to 13, this God of blessing. See, the application point here is to remember that whenever our material, temporal, physical needs are met, whether we live on a farm, whether we live in Houston, it's a reason to give thanks and praise to our God of blessing, that he is our God from whom all blessings flow. But now before we leave Psalm 65, I want us to briefly go back to verse 9. It says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. Think about that phrase, the river of God. You know, the idea of the river of God, it echoes throughout the whole Bible. Do you realize that? In the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, there's a river. In the very last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, there's a river. In Psalm 46... Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And here in our text, there's the river of God. It's full of water. If you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that this is possible this, that Psalm 65 was written to be sung at the annual Feast of Tabernacles. Well, in, in John 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says the following, in John 7, 37 to 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, friends, just as God had to provide the rain to make Israel's crops grow, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential for our spiritual regeneration, for us being born again, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but the Holy Spirit regenerates us, and we are raised to newness of life, and the Holy Spirit is essential to our spiritual growth. You know, one last quote, through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit spreads waters of salvation to seep into sinners' hearts, bringing faith to life, softening the ground of hard and barren souls so that they abound with the fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, why should we and why must we praise our God? Because he's the God of grace, he's the God of might, and he's the God of blessing. You know, we live in a world that's still stained and marred by sin, 
things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we long for the day when Christ will return to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And we will be not only free from the penalty of sin, which believers are today through Christ, we'll not only be free from the power of sin, which we are through Christ, but we will even be free from the very presence of sin. And until that day, may every experience of God's grace and the forgiveness of our sins, may every experience of God's peace and his sovereign rule over the chaos of our lives, may every enjoyment of God's material and spiritual blessings serve as reminders for why we must and we will praise our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, and perhaps for many of us such a wonderfully unexpected, glorious psalm, a psalm that does remind us while we can and we should and we must praise you and adore you and worship you at all times and all places. Father, you are our God of grace and of might and power, sovereignly ruling always and over everything. And you are a God of blessing, both in every good and perfect gift that comes down from your hand, both materially, physically, temporally, but also you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you for these truths. May you write them upon our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.